Well, good morning, Crossroads Church. Man, what a day to get together as the family of God and worship together. Uh, good morning to you, North Glen Campus. Also, good morning to you, Fort Lupton and uh, Thornton Campuses. If you're watching us online, it is so good to be with you uh, this morning. I'm Pastor Chris. If we've not met yet, uh, it's a privilege for me to be here at Crossroads, to be one of your pastors, to open up God's Word together with you this weekend. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6. If you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, before we dive into the text this morning, though, I want to just give a quick recap, a quick word of thanks. Uh, our Thailand team went uh, to Thailand actually about a month ago. We left for Thailand for 12 days, and uh, there was 10 of us who went, and we got to experience just some amazing, amazing things. Uh, we, we visited three of our ministry partners there in Thailand. And so on the front end of our trip and on the back end of our trip, we visited two of our missionary partners, one of them, the New Life Center, which is, think, northern Thailand, uh, the Chiang Mai area. Uh, and then we also got to visit Nightlight, which is on the southern end of Thailand in Bangkok. Both of these ministries doing incredible work rescuing and rehabilitating women that are coming out of the sex trade industry. They're, they're giving them education. They're teaching them life skills. They're teaching them job skills. Many of them going on to, to run their own businesses and, and provide for their families. And so just these amazing stories of these women uh, finding new life. Uh, and not only that, but, but coming to know Jesus just incredible work. And in the middle of our trip, the majority of our trip, we spent uh, time with Mike and Becky Mann uh, doing a water project in a small village. This is what they do uh, all across northern Thailand in these little hill tribes as they build these clean water systems. Here's our team doing our flex pose in front of the 3,500 gallon water tank that we built uh, along with the staff. There's some of the villagers who worked right alongside of us all week long uh, to, to create clean water for themselves and their families. And here's a few of the kids enjoying that as well. But man, we, uh, we worked hard along with ITDP, Integrated Tribal Development Project, uh, this is what they do. They, in fact, this was their 267th water project that they've done in northern Thailand, where they go in, they have a water source, they build a filter, and then it travels to the village and fills up this tank. And then we, 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 we planted these pipes all around the village and faucets and spigots for them to have clean water now. Not only that, but ITDP goes back into these villages for the, uh, several years to come and offers training on sanitation and hygiene and agriculture and all of that, just again, this holistic idea of helping them become sustainable uh, in order to, to live well. And I just want to thank you, Crossroads, because it was your generosity, not only that, that helped support our team members by buying our cinnamon rolls this past fall and, and even donating to uh, many of our uh, team members, but also we were able to pay the $12,000 uh, price tag for that water project, and that was you guys. So I want to thank Crossroads Church for your generosity. It's an honor to be a part 
of such an amazing church. And so thank you. Thank you for supporting us with your prayer, with your encouragement. The team had a great time. We avoided sickness. We avoided injuries. And uh, we went and we got home and it was just great. And so thank you. Thank you again. In the coming weeks, uh, we'll put out a video that has more pictures and video and information about what we've done, uh, as well as some stories that we'll try to get out there. But in the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about any of these ministries that we visited, uh, all of their links are on our website. If you go to crossroadsabc.com slash missions, you can then find out about all of our missionaries, but also go and look at some of these specific ministries that we were a part of. Um, and so thank you again, Crossroads Church. So if, you, uh, if you've maybe missed the last few weeks, uh, just to take a minute to kind of orient you to where we are at, we are in uh, season two of our journey through the book of Luke. And here in season two, it's been clear the mission of Jesus. He said in chapter four that his mission has, that, that he has come to bind up the brokenhearted, to, to set the captives free, that he's come for the poor, he's come for the oppressed, he's come for those who are blind, that in short, he's come for people, specifically the poor, financially poor, spiritually poor, and physically poor. And what follows out of his claim and his clarifying his mission are just these incredible stories of him healing people. I mean, things that if we saw them today, your, your jaw would just sort of drop to the floor. Demons being cast out of people. Incredible, miraculous, physical healings. And what happens when those sort of things happen is that news begins to spread. And so sure enough, more people started coming to Jesus in droves, getting healed, getting the, these demons cast out of them. One morning, he walked by the Sea of Galilee, and he changed the lives of three fishermen by just simply saying, hey, follow me. And, and, and then another one, the Levi, the tax collector, one of those outcast and despised sort of people in this culture, Jesus says, follow me, completely changes his life. All of this is really just sort of getting under the skin of the Pharisees. They don't like it. He's, 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 he's rocking the boat. He's shaking things up, and they're not quiet about it. And so in Luke chapter 6, where we pick up today, um, we read this. It says in verse 1, on a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, hey, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And so Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So here, I'm going to stop here for a second. Here, the, the Pharisees are spying on Jesus and his disciples. I mean, they're in the middle of a grain field. And it's almost like they're kind of sneaking around, like in the background and kind of behind a bush. And they're like, okay, let's wait here because I know he's going to do something wrong, right? And then sure enough, they see his, his disciples pick some grain in there and they jump out. And they're like, we got you. We knew you were going to do something wrong, right? And so Jesus tells them about this story. Hey, remember in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, 
There's a story of David and his men, and they were hungry. And so what they did is they ate what's called the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence was this bread that they put, they, they put these 12 loaves of bread out on this table, uh, signifying Israel's dependence upon God that he was their source of strength and nourishment. And they would leave this out for a week. And at the end of that week, the priests would eat this week-old bread. Sounds delightful, doesn't it? And then they would put new loaves out for the following week. And so then he continues on in verse 5, and he says, The Son of Man, meaning himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, The story of David and then Jesus' claim here was staggering to them. What Jesus is saying here is not only is he greater than King David, but that he's also greater than the Sabbath. He continues on in verse 6. On another Sabbath, Luke writes, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it. And after looking around at all of them, sort of staring them down, he looked back at the man and said, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But the Pharisees, they were filled with fury. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Here Jesus says, hey, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? to save a life or to destroy it on the Sabbath. Here we see Jesus' mission coming to the forefront again, that he's here for for people. He's here for the hurting. He's always about saving life, and he's always about doing good. But the Pharisees, you see, we can read this and think, man, the Pharisees, they're going way overboard here, aren't they? I mean, aren't they just totally missing the point? Why would you be furious about that? But actually, they had pretty good reason to go overboard. You see, Sabbath is simply a fancy word that means stop. It means stop. It means to cease. And we see Sabbath at the very beginning when God created all things. And after he created mankind, the next day on the seventh day, he stopped. He Sabbathed. He also included this as the fourth commandment. In fact, if you keep reading in Numbers 15, there's a story of a man, you can go look at it later if you'd like, who gets caught picking up sticks one day on the Sabbath, and he ends up getting stoned to death. You see, Sabbath was a big, big deal. So in order for them to try to ensure that they were going to follow this law, in order to sort of insulate themselves from even getting close to to breaking the Sabbath law, what happened is they came up with these, the the rabbis came up with this oral tradition uh, and passed it down from generation to generation that included these 39 forbidden activities to do on the Sabbath. You see, they said, hey, we want to follow God's law. We want to be obedient. So in order to do that, let's, 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 let's insulate ourselves from even coming close to it. And so here's those 39 things that, they, that, that were forbidden. Are you ready for these? 
Okay, ready? Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, riding, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, uh, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, soothing, and marking. Don't do those. Now, okay, let's just be honest for a moment. Some of you, you heard those things and your heart sort of leapt for joy. Because some of you are rule followers, aren't you? All right, in fact, let's just be honest here. How many of you at all of our campuses would say, I love rules, like I'm a rule follower? Come on, raise your hand, don't be shy. Yeah, good, okay. So my wife, Renee, she's raising her hand right now. And so is my son Jackson. They're both kind of black and white. There's rules and, and they're important. My, myself and my daughter Evelyn, we're like, eh, it's all sort of gray. Like just rules are kind of meant to be broken, right? I mean, you know, rules are just guidelines. And so anyway, if you're like me, well, Lord help us. But, but here's the thing is that you see the Pharisees, they loved their rules, and, and this wasn't just ancient Israel, this is modern day Israel. In fact, if you've ever been to Israel, you've, you've probably noticed what they call the Shabbat elevators. Shabbat is just the, the Hebrew word for that. The Shabbat elevator is an elevator that, that goes up to the top floor of the hotel or the building or whatever it is, and then stops at every floor coming down. You see, on the Sabbath, uh, one of the laws is that you can't start or, or cut off electricity. So by pushing a button on the elevator, you're going to break Sabbath law. And so what you do on the Sabbath, if you need to go down, you wait until the elevator stops at your floor. You simply step onto it and then wait till it goes down every other floor to get to where you want to go without having to push a button. They also have Sabbath, uh, Sabbath mode on appliances. This is kind of nice, actually. So your ovens you can put your, your food in the oven and, and program it all on Friday uh, before the Sabbath starts Friday night, and it will automatically prepare your food in the timing you want and keep it warm until you're ready to eat it so that you don't have to prepare on the Sabbath. A Sabbath mode on a lamp. Did you know that? A lamp. So they can't, again, they can't start or, or turn off electricity. And so a lamp will be left on, but then there's a way to sort of hide the light when you don't want it and then expose the light when you do want it as to not have to break electricity. You see, here's the thing. Sabbath originally was intended to be a good gift for us. It's an invitation to stop. An invitation to be restored, to intentionally go against the chronic restlessness of our culture and of our, and of our society, to play, to worship, to be rejuvenated, to slow down and just to breathe. I mean, doesn't that sound amazing? That sounds, that sounds really good. But the point of this text has less to do with observing the Sabbath and more to do with what Jesus meant when he said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. See, what he meant here is that he's greater than the Sabbath. What he's saying is that it's one thing to observe the Sabbath. It's another thing to encounter the Lord of the Sabbath. 
In other words, what he's saying here to the Pharisees is, look, you can obey all of your man-made rules about the Sabbath and miss the Lord of the Sabbath. And so let's take that one step further for us. Here's the point. Is that it's possible to follow all of the rules and completely miss Jesus. And that startles me. That scares me. You can follow all of the rules and completely miss Jesus. And what Jesus is confronting here in a word is legalism. The simple definition of legalism is when I attempt to secure righteousness by my works. That's it. But not only that, but it's inflicting those same standards, those same man-made rules on other people. It's earning God's approval, God's affection. It elevates man-made laws to the same level as God's expectations and laws. And here's the thing, legalism always starts with good intentions. It does. Just like the Pharisees, they wanted to follow God's law, and as a result, this, this, this tangled web of legalism sort of rose to the surface. Have you ever felt the sting of legalism? Have you ever felt that? I know I have <clears throat> in several different occasions. One, and I believe this is a story that I've shared before, but when I was in fifth grade, uh, we had a house fire, and, and my family and I, we lost pretty much everything. And it was either that weekend right after or the following, I can't remember, but we went to church. And we were pretty shaken up about it, right? I mean, our lives were just kind of upside down. <clears throat> we went to church and, and one guy had the, the nerve to, to say to my mom, man, I can't believe you let your boys come to church dressed like that. <laughs> Because we had the same clothes that we went to school with that earlier that week. I can't believe you let your boys come to church dressed like that. Have you ever felt the sting of legalism? Of legalism? And, and kind of to, to, to go down that road of, of dressing up on Sunday, it's kind of a cultural thing, right? You, we, we have our Sunday best. And, and hear me, there's nothing wrong with that. But have you ever thought about where did that come from? Where did that start? You ever wondered that? In fact, most of church history, that, that wasn't even a consideration. Why? Because people didn't have different clothes for different things. I remember growing up, we had our school clothes drawer. We had our play clothes drawer. We had our Sunday clothes drawer, right? And, and depending on the day, depending on what you're doing, you wore those different clothes. That didn't start until about the early 1800s. And we see this rise in, uh, in England where the, the middle class is, is starting to grow and, and mass manufacturing enabled the common person to have nicer clothes. At the same time, kind of during the mid, middle of the century, these churches in Europe and America started emphasizing this idea of cleanliness is next to godliness. Thus, this, this emphasis on giving your best to God meant that when you come to church, you dressed nice and you appeared nice. That's, that's, that's where it came from. But let me ask you this. Where is that in Scripture? The Bible doesn't say anything 
about how God will be impressed by how we dress. In fact, the Bible says that man looks at the outside, God looks at the what? The heart. Even in the New Testament, we see, hey, don't spend too much time adorning the outside, but spend more time tending to what's inside. Now, don't hear me. I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't dress up on Sunday, but here's the question in that is where is your heart? You see, what started as a good thing to give God your best on Sunday can quickly become this cultural legalistic standard. And I'm just picking on Sunday best for a moment, but, but the reality is, is that we can be legalistic about anything, can't we? We can be legalistic about what you eat or drink, where you eat or drink, where you send your kids to school, uh, where you sit at church, maybe how often you're at church, whether you're sitting in the front or in the back. Uh, we can be legalistic about things as petty as like what kind of car you drive or, or, or how you, what stores you shop at or, or where you spend your weekends. My guess is that we've all felt the sting of legalism in some way. And here's the thing, is that it's easy to point out legalism, isn't it, when you feel it? It's easy to point at these Pharisees and go, man, they're just being legalistic. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever noticed legalism in your own heart? That's not as easy to point out. It's not as obvious. It's much more subtle to us. So as I began to think through this question, I thought, well, how have, I, how have I been legalistic in my own heart? And I found these three ways that I've identified legalism here. And maybe you can identify with some of these. But for me, the first one is this, is, is that feeling that, that God sees me differently depending on what I've done. Ever thought that? That God looks at me differently if I've lived a good life this week, that he must like me more, that he must love me more, that, that somehow I've earned some brownie points with him because of what I've done or because of what I haven't done. That this guy that I used to be, oh man, God just sort of tolerated him, but now, now that I have my act together, he actually loves me. Have you ever thought that? The second way that I've experienced legalism in my own heart is when I have a contract with God instead of a relationship with God. This is when we sort of uh, minimize God to this sort of karma level that, that if you do good, good things will happen to you. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. That, that God, I'm going to do my part, and, but you better do your part. And if I do good, God, you better throw me a bone if I do bad, I'll suffer the consequences. But if I do good, you better throw me a bone. I'll do what I'm supposed to do, and you better come through. You, this, this, what this ends up looking like is that when life falls apart, we make accusation against our good God, saying, where were you? Why didn't you let me down? I've been a good Christian. I've gone to church every week. I've, I, I've given my tithe. I, I serve you. You owe me this, God. You failed to deliver. You let me down. You see, it's more of a contract that we deserve good things from him because of how we've lived. 
The third way that I've seen legalism in my own heart is when I get caught in the comparison trap. The comparison trap is, is just simply what it sounds like. It's, it's God, I might have my problems, but I'm not as bad as that guy. I mean, I know I have my issues, but, but man, God has his work cut out for this guy. And I know that God forgave me, but, but God's going to have to work a little bit harder to forgive this other person. You see, when I think like this, it's usually during the same sort of time that I, that I think I'm impressing God with, with how I'm doing. And for some sick, twisted, and ultimately prideful reason, I think, wow, God must have to give me less grace today. God has to give me less grace than this other person. But here's the truth, is that even on our best days, aren't we infinitely in need of the deep grace of God? I mean, even on our best days, nothing compares to his grace. And so here's the thing is you can observe the Sabbath perfectly and miss Jesus. You can dress to the nines every Sunday and never miss a Sunday and still miss Jesus. You can go to Bible study every week and miss Jesus. You can be better than the next guy. You can volunteer. You can serve. You can donate snacks for kids at schools and still miss Jesus. You can fast this past week as Pastor Matt asked us to and miss Jesus because if your heart is in the wrong place... You can do all of the right things and miss Jesus. But not only that, but it creates an unnecessary barrier for those who want to follow Jesus. Unnecessary barriers. Come follow Jesus with me, but before you do, you know, kind of clean up your act a little bit. Maybe put on some new clothes before you come to church with me. Maybe stop eating or drinking at this place or whatever that is, right? And we create these legalistic barriers. And I don't know about you, but man, I don't want to waste another minute trying to do the right things and miss Jesus at the same time. So then the question becomes, well, how do we do that? How do we make sure that we're not just going through the motions, doing the right things, and missing Jesus. Well, I think this is what Paul experienced. You see, Paul, many years later, was a Pharisee. In fact, if he was around during this time, he would have been right there with the Pharisees accusing Jesus and his disciples. And Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 3. He says this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew. Of Hebrews, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee, as to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. And here's the answer to how. He says this, but whatever gain I have I've had, I count it as loss 
for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Which in the original language literally means solid animal waste. But this is the G-rated version of that. (laughs) In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Man, that's good news, isn't it? Now, some of you are thinking, but wait a second. The Bible says that we were created for good works. And I would say, yes, you are absolutely created for good works to be done as worship to God, but never to be done with the motivation to earn righteousness. It's a small but important difference. Because when we try to earn righteousness, when we try to earn God's favor favor by our good works, they are nothing more than rubbish. That we're not gaining points with God. Because our righteousness, as Paul says, is about the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, who loves you and died in your place, and in doing so, imparted his righteousness onto you. And when we trust in his righteousness, we stand before the King of kings, the holy creator God, and completely righteous, completely blameless, completely justified and innocent. Why? Not because of my my rubbish, but because of his blood that covers me. Now, there's some of us here this morning at all of our campuses, and, and, and you've been carrying around this heavy burden of religious duty. You've been going through the motions, and you're doing all the right things. But if you're honest, you've missed Jesus. You're distant, and you're tired. There's also people here at all of our campuses And you know, it's clear to you that you don't have anything to offer him. You know that you don't have anything altogether, that you're well aware of your shortcomings and your shame. And you're searching for rest and for new life and for truth. Well, the thing is, is that there's good news for all of us. Because when Jesus said that he was Lord of the Sabbath, it doesn't only mean that he's superior to the Sabbath, but that he is our Sabbath. Jesus is our our Sabbath because it's in him that we find rest. It's in him that we can cease striving. It's in him that we find peace and restoration. It's in him that we no longer have to earn his favor. We no longer have to work for our own righteousness. It's in him that we can lay our burdens down and take up his easy yoke of new life. 
And he's simply inviting us the same way that he invited his disciples by just saying, hey, follow me. Would you follow me? I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. But before I do, I I want to invite you to close your eyes as I read these words that Jesus said for Matthew 11. Would you close your eyes? Jesus says this, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me and get away with me. You'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. Well, Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you sent your son to this earth to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, to fulfill it, to live a perfect life and to to die in our place, buying us back and imparting your righteousness to us. Father, we confess to you this morning when we, when we have that small twinge in our heart and we think that maybe you like us better than someone else, that you have to give us less grace because we have our act a little bit more together. God, we, we confess to you this morning when we function with legalistic rules. And God, we turn from that and we embrace the gospel of Jesus that has nothing to do with our righteousness, but everything to do with your righteousness. Father, help us to enter into Sabbath rest. Help us to enter into the rest that you've given to us through Jesus Christ. Father, we love you and we thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.